This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All of one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I can remember I did a play once, and I was working with someone, and it was not going well. This person was really struggling. They were having a very hard time. If I honestly responded to what I was seeing, it would not be the play. I realized that I had to manhandle the narrative back into what we were doing. And I focused on the first button of this person's shirt. I never looked in their face. And I turned it into a character thing. And I just stared at the button. It goes against everything I I know to be true about acting. But I also knew that my first responsibility is to the story. Story first, story first, story first. And if you get too far away from story, an audience will get nothing out of it. That's the wonderful actress Laura Linney. I've acted with Laura, and she really knows how to relate, on stage and off. I think the way actors have to be present for one another is a good model for how we relate in life, too. So I wanted to talk to Laura about that connection actors have to have, and what do you do when the other actor doesn't relate back? Laura, this is so great to be talking to you again, to be be together again on a little tiny screen. I love it. I know, I know. I'm just so happy to see your face and to hear your wonderful voice. I had the best fun acting with you. You're so there, you know? Well, you make it very easy, Alan. (laughs) You make it very, very easy. You want to be there when you're in the room with you, you know? Isn't just being there enough to to reflect what the other person is giving you, Mm -hmm. that seems to me to be almost the essential part of the whole business. Well, it makes it all possible. Yeah. Sort of nothing can happen really, nothing can really happen that will surprise you or feel alive unless that's, unless you're engaged with someone else. And that saying that a lot of actors have is my performance is in the other person's eyes. Always. They make us do <laughs> what we do. Yes. Otherwise we're saying what yeah. we remembered from the script. That's right. Or you're seeing the script in your head, or you you know where you are on the page. Yeah, well, like where you the see dialogue the page. is on the page. Okay, that line is on the bottom half of this page. If I can remember, <laughs> if I can, maybe if I can see it, I'll remember it. When you <laughs> see the page instead of the other person's face, that's there's not big a good, that's trouble. That's not a good sign. 
That's not so good. (laughs) What do you do? You might want to rethink things. Yeah, right, right. What do you do if you don't get connection from the other person? How do you handle that? You know, you have to find it somewhere. Sometimes it's the language. Sometimes it's what the other person is wearing. (laughs) Sometimes it's a plant that's in the room with you. Wait a minute. You got to go over this again with me because this sounds like a big tip. I'm acting with somebody who's dead to the world. So I look at the potted plant. How does that help? You can. The color (laughs) of the plant. Explain that. I don't. Just some. Well, you know, or you can zero in on one aspect of their face. Uh, There's usually something that will give you a reference to something else that will connect you. If what in front of you is not working. I can remember I did a play once and I was working with someone and it was not going well. And I took out my contact lenses. I took them out and I focused on the first button of this person's shirt. I never looked in their face and I turned it into a character thing and I just stared at the button, their button. And I did everything to the button and I examined the button and the shape and the texture of the the fabric behind the button, <laughs> and it just became, I had a, an incomplete relationship with, with that bit of the costume that that other person was wearing. It was, it was a horrible thing to do. I felt like I was betraying the other actor, and I felt it goes against everything I, I know to be true about acting, but I also knew that my first responsibility is to the story. Story first. Story first, story first, story first. And if you get too far away from story, you can't, an audience will get nothing out of it. Well, if if you're not telling the story, what are you there for? Exactly. Does the story mean the most to you when you're deciding to do a part? Usually if I read a script and my actor brain turns on while I'm reading it and I start working on it before I finish reading Uh it, like subconsciously start making decisions, ideas start coming, feelings are happening, like then I know I have to pay attention to it. If I read it and all I'm thinking about are the facts of the environment in which it will be filmed, where is it filming, who am I working with? If I'm thinking about those sort of mundane things, or if I'm commenting on the script to myself as I'm reading it, Mm. it might not be the best fit. Yeah, I know know an actor who, who makes movies all the time, and he opens up a script to see if he wants to do it. And the first line is... The jungles of Indonesia. He closes the script and puts it in. <laughs> yeah, night doesn't go over terribly night, well yeah, either. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Night scenes in the night. snow. That, that's, that's a, right, that's in a the good, snow. good reason oh. to turn it down. Being cold. It can be. You know, it can be as um, mundane as that. Like, I just can't handle working nights in the snow at this point in my life. Or, you know, or there is such a pull that it's sort of undeniable. There's a pull mm. to either the script itself, the story, people who you might... There's some people, if they whisper my name, I will show up. I don't care what it is. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, think but we honestly, all, there are. We all have that. There's a list of those people. Yeah. And if they, if they say, will you come do this? I'll just say yes. I don't even have to look at it. I'll just show up. Yeah, it's such a treat to work with people that you you know you're going to be a better better actor and a better person after you leave. Yes, yes, you, and that people want what you have to offer. Yeah, that's, that's that. It's very nice to be wanted. Yes, because I had that in the movie once, The Aviator. 
Yes. And I was asked to do it, and I, I really wanted to work with the director very much, and, I, and, I, and it was a wonderful script. Mm-hmm. And they said, "This, you're perfect for this. You're just right for this part. You're just absolutely perfect. And then it was a real person who had lived. Yes. And they sent me his picture, and he was the ugliest person I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> Even an ugly soul, you know. <laughs> so that turned out actually to be wonderful. Yeah. Oh, sure. It's great to play a bad person. Do you like, do you, have you played many bad people? I, I play deeply conflicted people. Yeah. I've played deeply wounded people. And usually people who are bad people are deeply wounded. Yeah. In some way. And it's a reaction to that. I know your your father was a, a well-known playwright, but I get the impression that you grew up watching plays get made and watching actors act the same way I did. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you first were watching rehearsals or plays from the wings or anything like that? Very young. My parents divorced when I was an infant, mm. and my mother was not in the arts, uh, and my father was a struggling playwright in New York City. And it was... Everybody tried their best, but, you know, it wasn't convenient for him to have a little girl tag along with him 48 hours a week. (laughs) You know, it wasn't always convenient for him. And I would be taken to rehearsals and told to sit in the corner and be quiet. And I loved it. Yeah. I just, I just loved it. And still to this day, there is nothing that makes me happier than walking into a room and seeing tape on the floor, Uh. which is a set that's been taped out, some shitty old chairs, like a crappy table with some, you know, paper cups with pencils in them. Wait, that's my house. (laughs) But nothing makes me happier than walking into a room where you have, you know, where you're going to be held Mm. with another group of people. And I mean held, just the space is going to hold you. And it's up to you to create something. I just, I, I love rehearsal spaces. I love them. Did you learn a lot just watching? Yes. I still learn a lot watching. Yeah, I do too. And I learn a lot watching bad things too. What do you think when you watch something good and when you watch something that doesn't work? What do you, what do you think? Well, I think both, both, it's the same thing. I ask myself, why? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, why is that so good? And why is it just the intersection of a great performance and my experience intersecting? Or is it that's just so undeniably good it has nothing to do with me? Or is it all me projecting onto them? Mm-hmm. Is that why it's like what what is it that it's what is that work awakening in me as an audience member? Why am I feeling so deeply? Or why am I so, you know, why am I now hysterical with laughter? And, and also, I love watching stuff that doesn't work. Like, why is that not working? What's the misstep? What work wasn't done? What did they forget to examine? Or you step back a bit and you think, what in the narrative is off? What, why is the mobile out of balance? Mm. Is there one character that had to come in maybe with a little bit more? Like, what? Because there's so many threads that go into making something. You just pull one out and everything falls apart. Yeah. Where did you learn all of this? Where did you study? Well, I went to Brown University for college and was a theater history major there, or well, theater arts, but mm. really my emphasis was theater history. 
And being around my father, certainly, because I talk shop to him all the time. Mm. And I loved going to the theater with him. I loved talking about this kind of stuff. And then a lot of it is just in the doing. You know, I've been so fortunate because I've, very much like you, you know, sort of worked, just work, I'm a workhorse. You know, mm. I've sort of worked nonstop since I got out of school. And there is something about just being in it all the time. You know, you're always warm. So I think you, your mind sort of expands a little bit more. You just sort of keep, it layers and then things become answered. I sort of think of it like a Chinese puzzle. Like you sort of have to earn, you have to earn the, to solve a problem and then it will unlock and present another problem. <laughs> and you sort of are constantly solving problems. Yeah. And I think that's what technique is. You know, I think it's just being able to recognize, okay, I'm having a problem here, not freak out about having the problem diagnosing what the problem actually is, and then how do I make that better? How, do, how can I get out of it? How can I get this sick feeling in my stomach? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, how can I get the, rid of it? How do you get rid of that sick feeling? <laughs> how can I get rid of the self-loathing as quickly as possible? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a great I hate, technique. I hate the sound that. of my own voice so much. <laughs> like, how do I get rid of it? So... I know you studied at Juilliard, mm-hmm. right? Yes. But is this an internet myth that you also studied acting in Moscow? I did. What? For a short period of time through Juilliard, Brian Cox, the great actor Brian Cox, yeah. somehow developed a relationship with the Moscow Art Theater School. And he, God bless him, created this program where two students from all of the British schools Plus, the idea was two students from all of the big acting schools in the United States would go to Moscow and study with these great artists, these great theater, and study Chekhov and Ostrovsky. Mm. And what happened to our good fortune was my class, none of the other schools wanted to do it or couldn't do it, or I don't quite understand what it was. So my we thought originally it was just going to be two members of our class who were going to get to go. The entire, my entire class went, Mm. all of group 19 from Juilliard went to Moscow for, I think it was five weeks. And we studied Chekhov and Ostrovsky. And that trip of all of the time that I spent at Juilliard, that trip sort of changed everything for me. Mm. And it wasn't because my, my teacher, Alexander Kalyagin was saying anything to me that my teachers at Juilliard had not been saying. He was he was saying the exact same things I've been hearing for four years. I heard it differently. Yeah, he was Russian. Yeah, he was Russian. I was in a foreign environment. I was scared and exhilarated and nervous and in a different place. And just the penny dropped. Something realigned in me mm. during that trip. And I remember the moment it happened, it was like all of a sudden doors just flew open and I could, I, my, I don't know how to describe it, my ability to interpret things in a script, and then my ability then to execute those ideas knitted together for the first time. Mm. And I was actually, it's like the kaleidoscope just shifted, and it was a whole new palette, and it made sense. And I sort of geek out and nerd out trying to find ways to, you know, to look at something differently or See if I if I do this or if I do that, will that do anything? Does that change something? What does that do to the language? What does that do to the script? What does that do to the other actor? What is that? You know, I really make, you know, 
notes and I, I, I enjoy doing that, but it also, I get closer to the story because of that. And then the more I know, the more I find I can relax and then I can sort of let go and things, and I can be surprised every day, which I love. Was it difficult in any way for you to go from stage to film? It was exhilarating, and it was, for me, it was just sort of funny, because I didn't think I'd ever have a career doing that. (laughs) (laughs) So I sort of, I got a small part in Lorenzo's Oil, which I just sort of did as a lark. I've always been terrified of cameras. I'm not, I don't like photos of myself. I don't, you know, it's not, I'm not, I'm not an extrovert, really. Um, So, you know, so the whole film TV thing world sort of intimidated me completely. But when I went into Lorenzo's Oil, I had a scene outside. And it was the first time I had ever acted outside in my entire <laughs> life. And I just thought it was hysterical. I thought it was hysterical. I could feel the wind blowing. I didn't have to pretend I was cold. I was cold. I walked across the street. I went down. There was a steady cam that was following me. I was just, ex- it was exhilarating. There is something yeah. extraordinary to me about being in, in a film set where you're on the real location, you're in a real apartment building or you're in a real courtroom uh, yes, or you're I outside. Agree. Yes. It, 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 just, it just is exciting because you. It is. Th- this is the way a human would react to the environment. Yes. Because it is the environment. Yes, yes. And it also makes your job a lot easier because there's a lot you just don't have to do. Like the, the real environment will do it for you, you know. There's just something about the patina of the way a, a wall looks. Yeah. You know, that I don't, I don't have to then, you know, telegraph that this place is run down or the place actually really does smell bad. I don't have to pretend that it smells bad. It actually does smell bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, can, I, re, I can't remember. I have this feeling it was on the show I did with you, The Big C. Yeah. I was a doctor walking into an examining room. Maybe it wasn't your show, but was, was, I was a doctor. And I remember each time on each take that I walked in, before I opened the door, I'm facing a fake back part of scenery. Yes. So there's the white canvas yes. and the wooden struts. Yes. And I, and I think to myself, I'm not in a hospital. I'm, I'm looking at scenery. Yes. Then I open the door and I'm in a room. And all of a sudden I have to be in the room now. Mm-hmm. This is is such a subtle thing, but you you gotta you gotta know you're where you are. You gotta be where yes. you are. And until I got the door open, I wasn't mm-hmm. I wasn't there. No, no, your body was somewhere else. Yeah, and this is after doing this for sixty years. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just human nature, and I think people think that acting is trickery. I know, I know. And it's not, or they think you're lying. I, I've always struggled with that. I've heard a couple of actors say that, and it, it astonished me because they were good actors. But it's not lying. No, it's the op- I, I see it as the opposite of lying. Me too. And yet we know it's all a conceit, and yet it is a conceit. So it's, you know, that whole question I find very interesting. But I, I've never understood people will, will look at me and, 
and say, you know, well, you're, you're an actress. Just pretend, just act that you like this. Or, you know, I get nervous on red carpets and the fashion oh, thing yeah. is, is kind of fun, but I'm not very good at it. And, you know, I feel sort of silly sometimes. And they're like, you're an actress. Just play, the, you know, just pretend that you're... <laughs> I'm like, well, I can do that when I'm working, but this is my life. That's right. <laughs> I'm not a good liar. I'm a really bad liar. I'm a, I can be a good actress, but I'm a bad liar. When we come back from our break, Laura Linney and I plunge right into our seven questions. And as I expected from knowing Laura, her answers were intriguing and revealing about her work ethic, how she finds confidence and inspiration, and at least to me, a surprising pick for the book that changed her life. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, You can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alder Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Patreon.com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the California Road Trip Republic, we believe you take adventure for a ride. Whether coastal cruising, mountain motoring, or redwood roaming, discover beauty around every turn. Your California road trip can kick off from anywhere. Starting route. But it should always start at visitcalifornia.com. Then buckle up, crank those tunes, and ride with us in the California Road Trip Republic. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Laura Linney. I wanted to try something with you. We end each show 
with seven questions. And I call them seven quick questions because it's a question and an answer and boom, you go to the next one. And the answers have been so interesting from so many interesting people that a lot of our listeners have said, why don't you do the seven questions in the beginning? Because we want to hear what they have to say about those questions. Oh, okay. You want to do the questions? And Sure. Okay. Yes, I'm nervous. And they're generally in a loose way associated with communicating and relating. Mm-hmm. What do you wish you really understood I'm sort of glad that I don't understand. I don't want to fully understand. Anything? Well, no. I mean, you. I want to know enough. But I want to just know enough. And then, because if I feel like I know too much, or if I feel like I just know, then I'll stop. Then people stop. When they're too knowing, mm-hmm. they stop. Yeah. So I want to just know enough. Know enough to... Do what? To to feel safe. Yeah. And to feel like there's more to discover and that I'm capable of discovering. Ah, yeah. So what you want is more curiosity. No, because I'm already curious. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I'm already curious. Don't I don't think I need more curiosity. <laughs> I think I'd drive everybody crazy. If I had more curiosity, it would be a terrible thing. <laughs> right. Got it. I know, I know what know? that's like. Let me ask you the next question. Mm-hmm. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> you know, I, I tend to say, you know, I, I, I'm so sorry, but I see it very differently. Oh. This is, you know, this is how, this is my experience. This is how I see it. Yeah. This is how, you know, so I tend to not negate what what they see. I mean, it depends upon the circumstance, but, you know, in this day and age, God knows that's been a big topic of conversation. And, and I've been thinking a lot about, this is a total tangent, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go there. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about cults mm-hmm. and what happens to people when they are indoctrinated into a, 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 a frame of thinking and are, their whole world is sort of they go in with a good intention and it all gets turned around. And then politically, of course, there's what, you know, what we've all been ex- witnessing here. And, and it's really made me sort of stop and think about some of the lessons that I've learned throughout my lifetime that that I've always very, really believed in. And it's made me sort of stop and go, maybe that's not right. Mm. Maybe I don't have to give 125% to my profession. Maybe maybe eighty percent is enough. Maybe I don't have to give everything I have to be good or successful at my work. Because that's basically what I was told growing up. That if you wanted to be an actress, you had to give 110% nonstop all the time. You couldn't do anything else. And if you didn't do that, then you didn't really deserve it. Mm. And you shouldn't really have it. And so I worked very hard for a long period of time and really kind of exhausted myself in the process. And I've come to sort of stop and re-examine that and realize I was fed a sort of myth that maybe didn't serve me well. Did this realization that maybe you don't have to devote 125% come around the time you had your first child? 
It happened a little bit before that. Yeah. <laughs> it did happen before that. Wait, was it tied in with that? Well, I knew that when I had Bennett, that I was going to have to work differently. And, but I'm someone who likes to work hard. And I, I realized I was going to have to shift my whole perception of what it meant to work hard so that I could have the time with him and he could have my undivided attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure that had something to do with it, but I had already started thinking about it a little bit before then. And do, do you feel your work has suffered or has, has it got better or is it about the same? What, what was the effect on the work? I don't know. I, you know, I don't know if it's better or worse or, I, you know, it's different because I'm different. Mm. And I've just sort of had to tell myself, like, this is enough. You know, like what, what you're giving is enough. It will be enough. You have to trust that. I, I, I never felt it was enough even when I was giving 150%. You know? <laughs> so it's a hard thing to, yeah. to sort of let yourself be, but you have to sort of, you know, come to peace with it in some way. Okay, let me, go, let me ask you the next one. Okay. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Uh, uh, strange strange. We were staying at a very strange hotel in London. And there was a very, very sweet woman who was staying in the hotel. And she goes, are you that lady from the play? Are you the lady from the movie and the plays? And I, I was like, I, I, I might be. I said, yes. She goes, why you look so different in life? You, you're so pretty in life. And you, you, you have a big face like moon in movie. Why you look so different? Why you look so different? And you don't quite know how to respond to that. No. <laughs> like, why, why are you so much better looking in person? You know, it's just as bad the other way. I've had it both ways. I, sure. You look, think, you look so much better on the screen or you look so uh, much yeah, better yeah, I, now. You know, either way, you don't want to hear it. So I, well, you just don't quite know what to do with that. You can't quite tell if that's just an innocent sort of reaction. And yeah. of course people look different. And of yeah. course you do. And it's, you know, or if they're meaning to make you feel bad. I so bet I think not. The, strange, the strangeness comes with someone's motivation of wanting to say, you know, I've had people come up to me and say, you know, I thought you stunk in that movie. Oh, God. <laughs> Something, actually? You know. Oh, yeah. You know, people will come up and say this, the craziest things to you. Or there's just an inane question that's asked when you think you're there, when, you, when you're doing press and you think you're there to actually discuss your movie or the work that you've done or the great actor that you've worked with. And someone says, where do you get your pedicures? <laughs> you just kind of, the, the sort of, the disconnect of, of where you think you are and where they think they are and, and the intersection of that can sort of, you know, throw me for a loop sometimes. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I don't. You just stand I don't. there. I just, I just nod, and then I become, fa- and then I watch them. You go, you go fascinated. to the buttonhole. I go, uh huh, uh huh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, uh huh. Or I secretly time them. <laughs> oh, I've that's done, great. I've done this. Yes. I have a relative who's a, who was a who was a big talker, and I remember I went over to see them, and I thought, I'm not, I'm going to see how long can I go. With only saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, 
Uh-huh. And I, I timed it. It was 45 minutes. Oh, my God. 45 minutes of a monologue. But you really do like to work hard. That's, that's, <laughs> that's not easy to do that of, for 45 it's minutes. Fascin- it's fascinating to watch someone who just... What was? How well, did it end? Did the person say, "Am I right?" Or what? No, I think they got hungry, <laughs> <laughs> which you could have done much earlier, or or thirsty from talking too much. So I I think you know human behavior I find kind of fascinating. Now, if I'm trapped with someone who's talking nonstop, you know, then then I'll make some some excuse about I'm so sorry, you know. I have to go to the loo or something like yeah, that. It's good. You know, if you're on an airplane on an airplane next to someone for oh, man. six hours, oh, man. that can be hard. Yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Okay, let's say dinner conversations come back again because dinners have come back mm-hmm. and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real, an, an authentic conversation with that person? I try and find out as much about them as I possibly can. And how do you go about that? How do you know our host or, uh-huh. you know, are you from here? Do you, what do you do? I'll just, I'll just ask questions. And one, and one thing will lead to another. You, you, you know, you, you strike me as an improviser. Did you ever improvise professionally? I'm not the, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not as quick as I would like to be. You know, if I under if I really understand the character, then I can improvise like crazy. Yeah. But if there if I'm a little tentative, then I then I just tri- you know trip over my words and then I feel really foolish. Then it's just bad improv. It's nothing worse than bad improv. <laughs> it's <No>. Just agony. <laughs> or just or agony. or a scene that's played using the lines of the script and it sounds like a bad improv. That that yes. that makes me yeah. nuts. I know. Now here's one that interests me. What gives you confidence? I think inspiration. Tell me more about that. I think if I'm inspired, then I then it gives me confidence. So what would be an example of that? If I if I'm inspired by something I see, if I learn something, if it's I think the more I'm taken out of myself, the more confident I become. Does that make sense? No. I think if I can. (laughs) (laughs) I just just violated the first rule of improv. You're not supposed to go with it. (laughs) (laughs) No. But I think, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm really struggling and I don't, I don't understand something or I don't, you know, I'm confused. But if there's something that changes my thought process, if there's something that makes me think in a different way, mm. if there's a freshness to my thought or if I can get out of a groove and I'm into like new territory, mm. I think weirdly that that gives me confidence because I know there are no rules that I have to follow, that I'm really, there's nothing that I'm beholden to, that it's new territory, so figure it out as you go. That's why I think you're an improviser. You you trust you trust your unconscious to come up with yes. something that'll keep you going. I do. That's that's really true. And I I find that but I have to have done all the preparation first mm. to get to that place. Mm. That will only happen if I'm prepared. Isn't it a wonderful experience when that stuff 
that you're describing mm-hmm. is flowing. Oh, it's, it's, it's there's an ecstasy about it. Oh, it's it's everything. It's what it's what I sort of hope to get to. Yeah. And I sort of feel like if you're not surprised every day, uh, then you're not the work's off. Yeah. Like something really has to surprise you. you like, oh, it's that. Oh, I didn't realize until I was right here in the moment looking at you. I go, that's what it is. Like the question, you know, it's been revealed. Things are revealed. Things are constantly evolving and revealing itself to you. And they're there to be had, it seems to me. You just have to make sure you're open to them. The, my, yes. my own experience and the scientists I talk to all seem to be reflecting the idea that the brain is working all the time. Mm-hmm. Solving problems, figuring out best solutions. Mm-hmm. What might be a weird solution come to the surface, which is what an inspiration feels like. It says, yeah. "That's well, that's odd." The unquantifiable is is an essential element. <laughs> you know, it's what you can't define, which is the most essential ingredient. Yeah, I think. Yes, yeah, for so, me. Okay, last of seven questions. Okay. What book changed your life? Oh, the uh, the Odyssey. Oh, tell why. Absolutely, the Odyssey. Really? I was, yeah, absolutely, hands down. I was a senior in high school. I was in Bob Cooley's class. There were only six of us in this class, or seven of us. We were in a circle. And it was the first time where literature and drama for me connected. And it was a very powerful moment where it wasn't just reading a novel or reading. It, it was it was a new experience for me. The whole, the poetic movements of that language where you would, where someone would take an arrow, shoot it, and then you follow the arrow all the way across to where it lands. Hmm. <laughs> you know, just things like that. So, and we we read a lot of it out loud. And it something in me shifted. My relationship to language completely shifted. Um, you know, and some of those expressions, you know, rosy-fingered dawn, Estianax, beautiful as a star shining, um, the, the legends and the, the mythology and the, the geography of following Odysseus through his journey and the symbolism through how what the place is represented and the obstacles that he was facing. I, I, I loved it. I, I truly loved it. I was completely inspired reading, for, for the first time, truly inspired. Like you open, you open that book and a whole world <laughs> <laughs> just like stood up and said, hello, <laughs> come on in. <laughs> and what did that? Was it the writing itself? Was it the teacher who made it vivid for you? What do you think it was? It's a whole com- it was a whole combination of things, as everything has to be. Everything has to be orchestrated for the perfect, you know, for the chemistry to happen. And, you know, some of it was Bob Cooley, that teacher. Some of it was the classroom itself, with these beautiful tall windows with these gorgeous trees outside. Some of it was my age. I was a senior in high school. I was falling in love for the first time in my life. That had a great deal to do with it, I'm sure, just that I was open and all of these big Epic feelings. I was having epic feelings in my life. Odysseus was having epic feelings. <laughs> and I understood it. That's I great. got it. That's I understood great. what they were saying. So it was um 
And it was, and it was beautiful. And I loved the age. I love that that story has been told over and over and over again. And that I'm sure during every period of time, there were many people like me who were astounded by it and awed by the beauty and the power of that, of that story. You know, I just, and it was the first time that that had really happened to me, where something I was studying, I was told I had to read, was all of a sudden just so much bigger than that, so much bigger than a high school lesson. That's great because it was, it was so much bigger and your telling of it is so much bigger than a high school lesson because it's exactly what we started talking about, about the world becoming real in your imagination and in, and in your perception of it. Mm-hmm. This has been so much fun. Oh, Alan, you're the greatest. You just are. You just are. You, you are. Every, every time, you know, you're an especially positive person. Every time I've been with you, you've said or done something that makes me feel better. You're very positive. Oh. It's really nice. <laughs> well, I really you. like that. <laughs> well, and today's a perfect I'm, example of it. Oh, thanks, Alan. I adore you. Thanks so much. Yeah. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. Our thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring both Clear and Vivid and our sister series, Science Clear and Vivid. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to the advancement of science for the benefit of humanity. Laura Linney has received a truckload of accolades for her work on Broadway, in movies, and on television. She's been nominated for three Oscars, four Tonys, and she's won three Golden Globes and four Emmys. She's now starring in the award-winning Netflix series, Ozark. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with cosmologist Michael Turner, who has made many great contributions to our understanding of the universe, but who also has a knack for the power of words. When astronomers discovered the astounding fact that the universe is expanding, it was Michael who came up with the name for what was causing it. And it's a name that stuck. By naming it Dark Energy, I wanted to get everyone's attention to say, we don't really know what this is. We know that it has repulsive gravity, but I think it's a much bigger puzzle. In fact, I have gone out on a limb several times to say it's the most profound problem in all of science. Michael Turner, Dark Energy, and other cosmic mysteries, next time on Clear and Vivid. In the meantime, check out our next episode of Science Clear and Vivid when I talk with Drs. Ayman Azim and Sharona Benheim. They're husband and wife, and they're both fascinated by how the brain controls our movements and how sometimes that control goes haywire. 
we should all be very impressed with ourselves. We do things every single day, like buttoning our shirt or writing a text on our phone that requires this incredibly complex coordination of dozens of muscles. And so I think if we can get a better understanding of the way that different circuits interact to coordinate these behaviors, we're gonna be in a better place for, for diagnosis and treatment. As a functional neurosurgeon, I try to alter human physiology you know, for the better decrease pain or to treat movement disorders. So for me, understanding a circuit is just about how to improve the treatment sort of in a very direct fashion. I'm in Azim and Sharona Benheim. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.